Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin. While the Glow and Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by NOAA, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by NOAA. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS. This is Every Little Helps. The Advantages of Gradual Reform Over Long-Term Thinking by Tyler Cowan from the issue of April the 21st, 2023. Tyler Cowan is Professor of Economics at George Mason University. His most recent book with Daniel Gross is Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives and Winners Around the World, published in 2022. Don't you wish our ancestors had cared more about the long-term when they made decisions affecting human impact on climate change and biodiversity? Won't our descendants wish we had done the same? This may sound like simple, obvious questions, but long-termism is a radical and oft-neglected philosophy, and few people are interested in living by its implications. It is, however, belatedly surfacing as a significant concept in philosophical and political debate. The effective altruism movement has spearheaded the charge, the subject a key theme of William McCaskill's 2022 bestseller, What We Owe the Future. Once you swallow the long-termist pill, it is hard to turn back. Is there not a possible human future with many billions, or perhaps even trillions of sentient beings, humans or their offshoots, colonising the galaxy and continuing to evolve for millions or billions of years? If so, should we not do everything to ensure that this future comes about, even if it lies in the distant future. Assuming we should, that would require a contemporary obsession with existential risk, as posed by nuclear weapons, for example, or runaway artificial intelligence. Those future trillions are relying on us not to self-destruct. There is a more prosaic version of long-termism. In most Western nations, current politicians seem less concerned with mounting debts and falling fertility rates than perhaps they ought to be. Common sense suggests that we should look ahead 10 or 20 years and consider whether, to cite one mainstream example, the fiscal position of the United Kingdom is sustainable, given current productivity growth rates, which often verge on zero or are negative. In a given year, a small boost to the rate of economic growth may not do much for human happiness, but compounded over decades or centuries, it will become very large indeed. 
a country that grows at 1% per annum will double its measured living standards every 70 years. A country that grows at 7% will double its living standards roughly every decade. If you play that difference out for a few decades, it ends up being substantial, a point laid out in my book Stubborn Attachments, published in 2018. But that argument is a tough sell for politicians with pending re-elections, and to voters with pressing needs and short attention spans. The broader pushback against long-termism is increasingly fierce. The philosopher, Emile B. Torres, wrote a polemic for Aeon against long-termism, October 19, 2021, which described the movement as both richly funded and quite possibly the most dangerous secular belief system in the world today. Torres's fear, quite simply, is that long-termism can too frequently be used to obliterate the demands of the present and ignore the suffering of today's individuals. This critique comes primarily from the political left, which commonly cites instances of human suffering, to which, it is argued, the polity is obliged to respond. But in the long-termist framework, this argument can never be the full picture, and there are always reasons to limit our obligations to those who are suffering today. Alleviation may help individuals in the short run, but more collective good might be done by allocating resources to innovation or disaster mitigation, such as protecting the Earth against an asteroid hit. Perhaps the long term is intrinsically difficult to predict, but that in turn means our obligations to the present become highly uncertain, because the pull of potential future benefits is never absent from our calculations. I have found that many advocates of long-termism favour the analytic mode and consequently de-emphasise the empathetic mode of political argument. That is one reason why long-termism is so controversial. The complicated nature of long-term arguments means that they are most commonly put forward by people with analytical inclinations. The kinds of arguments and discourse that are corralled in support of long-termism emerge from fields such as economics, rational choice theory and ethics, game theory and analytic philosophy. That may be a bug or a feature, depending on your point of view. Either way, the true disagreements over long-termism, as with most political concerns, remain foundationally rooted in our emotions and our personal temperaments. The right wing has its own version of scepticism about long-termism. To many of my conservative and libertarian friends, it sounds like a program for maximising state power or creating world government for the pursuit of ill-defined, distant benefits that will likely never come to pass. In these people's cynical but nonetheless insightful view, those who profess long-termism are, deep down, just as concerned with the immediate present and their short-term politics as is everyone else. The left and right-wing critiques may sound very different, but both point to a difficult question. Are the most ardent long-termists even capable of long-termism themselves? Another practical question is how much long-termism, properly applied, truly changes our decision calculus. One response to long-termism, not so much a critique as a partial surrender, is to argue that the best preparation for the long run is to invest in human talent, high-quality institutions and flexible responses today. Those moves may not always look like long-run investments, but perhaps they are. 
After all, can we be so sure about the exact form that long-term risk will take? Will we have to deflect an asteroid at short notice, fight off an evil AI entity, win a world war, and prevent a nuclear catastrophe, or deal with a supervolcano? The last one occurred 26,500 years ago. No one can know such things. But what we do know is that talent and good, flexible institutions can help us to deal with all these potential dilemmas and more. In this view, the gap between long, medium and short-run considerations is closed considerably. After all, human talent and good, flexible institutions should help us to deal with current problems too. And to the extent that these arguments succeed, everyone can be happy, even if not everyone prefers the long-termist mode of discourse. I call this the consilience version of long-termism. But before we let that satisfy us, we need to ask whether talent and good institutions should always be the priority for dealing with longer-term and existential risks. And are there any downsides to these apparently beneficial things? Let us consider, for example, a biomedical research centre that studies immunology and produces frontier-level scientific innovation. One might argue that the best thing to do with such a centre would be to invest in and expand it. Many long-termists are, however, less certain. They fear that superior knowledge of the human immune system will at some point enable terrorists or evil governments to design a deadly pathogen, able, for example, to go far beyond COVID in its carnage. And some suggest that humanity should stop research into frontier-level immunology altogether. The counter-argument runs thus. Even if we fear advances in immunology, is it not better for non-rogue actors to have the greatest understanding possible? Would it not, more simply, be better for the West to be ahead of China and Russia in this field? Might the West not need superior immunology to fend off a terror attack one day? And what are those potential rogue actors who are not ceasing their own research? Above all, what would it be like to have a government that banned an entire scientific field? And might science as a whole then stagnate? stifling our ability to divert that large asteroid heading towards the planet. A version of this debate recently erupted when more than 1,000 artificial intelligence experts and investors, including Elon Musk, signed an open letter calling on scientists to pause their work on large-language AI models such as ChatGPT4 for six months. They wrote, Powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that their effects will be positive and their risks will be manageable. The layers of argumentation pile up. That particular question will probably never be settled. Nonetheless, the consilience approach carries one strong trump card. Human beings are impatient and will probably never succeed in thinking purely about the long term. So the best we can hope to achieve, practically speaking, is to tie the long run to the short and medium runs as closely as possible. Even if consilience isn't perfect, it is perhaps the best we are going to achieve. The long-termists ought to pocket that win, knowing that they will not get much further, at least not any time soon. In this view, long-term thinking is important, but primarily because it helps us to think more clearly about the short and medium term. Most of all, we need to look for agendas where there is considerable overlap, when it comes to what is best across varied time horizons. 
but dangers lurk in this move as well. I've already mentioned that ostensibly long-termist agendas are often, in reality, primarily concerned with short-term political priorities. If the consilience versions of long-termism are those most likely to survive in the world of ideas, that will make it all the easier for long-termism to evolve into cloaked forms for shorter-term ambitions, dressed up in the proper analytical rationalist language. Entering this rapidly growing fray are three new books, each adding to the debate without coming close to concluding it. In The Long View, Why We Need to Transform How the World Sees Time, the science and technology journalist Richard Fisher tries to move us away from short-termism. He laments our environmental neglect, the two-year electoral cycles that define US congressional terms, and managers who prioritise quarterly earnings reports. He admires the medieval cathedral constructed over centuries, and his perspective draws on the timescales of geology, his topic of study at university. Over time, including from the many interviews he has conducted for the BBC, he has come to believe that it is possible to teach humanity a longer-term perspective, and he weaves together history, science and philosophy in explaining how. Fisher sees long-termism as a true innovation in social and philosophical thinking. Various churches have promoted long-term views, seen, for example, in the rituals of monks copying manuscripts, but until recently it was assumed that our secular world was predominantly short-term in outlook. And often it was. This has changed with the rise of environmentalism, and more generally with the accumulation of varying disciplinary perspectives many of which point our attention to a long view of time. The Oxford philosopher Derek Parfit, 1942-2017, laid out these themes in his pioneering book Reasons and Persons, 1984, which obsessed over the meaning of time for our understanding of the human self, and furthermore argued that policymakers should not discount the future merely because of its temporal distance. The long view is sprawling in its coverage, but clear throughout, and offers a compelling vision of how so many strands of human thought have come together to support long-term perspectives. One mistake that Fisher makes, also found in Jan Zielonka's The Lost Future and How to Reclaim It, is to portray capitalism as a congenitally short-sighted economic system. One of Fisher's chapters is titled Selling Short, The Unforgiving Immediacy of Capitalism. But while there are numerous instances of impatient consumers as well as portfolio managers who follow the investing herd to avoid losing their jobs, capitalism is by no means as short-sighted as Fisher's and Gialonka's rhetoric suggests. For example, adjusting for inflation, it is common for government securities to earn less than 1% return per annum, one measure of market discount rates when long-term risk is taken away. Or consider the investors who put resources into companies with no revenue, or who support nuclear fusion, artificial intelligence, or the construction of the metaverse. They are hardly in it for a quick killing. Precisely because investment returns compound, capitalism over time puts more resources into the hands of the more patient individuals. Most of all, a long-termist should want well-defined property rights to ease this process of capturing benefits today from good outcomes tomorrow. If you own the forest, you probably won't chop down all the trees. A better argument would be that the agency relationship, 
and the Mitchell firing for inferior short-term performance, rather than capitalism, leads to excess short-termism. Capitalism has plenty of agency relationships, of course, but so do all other systems, including politics and the charitable sector. At least under capitalism, there is an incentive to terminate or alter the most destructive agency relationships, precisely because they reduce longer-term wealth. As for the negative externalities of capitalism, for example in the form of carbon emissions, regulation is needed to solve those problems, not more patient behaviour in the markets. And in that sense, the issue is not one of short versus long-termism at all. Julonka's book offers a more political, less philosophical vision than that laid out by Fisher. The author's chief concerns are financial crises, energy shortages, climate change and war. We are given less Derek Parfit and geological timescales and more Greta Thunberg and Donald Trump. The print is large and no single line of inquiry lingers for too long. For these reasons, the remedies laid out in the book will come across to many as pedestrian. For example, I propose moving beyond the primacy of nation-states and empowering other public actors at the local and transnational level. But are the transnational organisations in our current world so far-sighted? Have not most of them collapsed or weakened greatly in recent years, including the United Nations and the World Trade Organization. What exactly is supposed to protect these organizations from a more general and rampant short-sightedness? They are, by the way, full of agency relationships, as criticized above. Furthermore, since most electorates are locally or nationally defined, it is hard to resist the suspicion that transnational institutions will be far from democratic. The European Union, for all its virtues and successes, does not escape this charge. Maybe local government is a better option, but it often has fewer resources and less talent, and is further removed from the cutting edge of science. As long as federal systems also exist, this is likely to remain the case. There are two pages of examples in Jilonka's book about how to get local politics right, ranging from greater reliance on institutions, such as the Municipal Council of Barcelona, a declining city by various metrics, including growth and investment, according to an article in the Financial Times on February the 9th, 2023, to the idea of a second chamber for the European Parliament, comprising representatives of cities. Another idea, he suggests, is that speakers at world climate summits could be selected by environmental NGOs and not the hosting governments. But are we really supposed to think that this will make a significant or even any difference to the world's biggest long-term problems? Whatever the virtues of long-termism may be, the doctrine is especially vulnerable to being commandeered into the favoured political cause of the day. Gialonka's book shows just how fragile the doctrine long-termism is in the real worlds of fractious politics. In Gradual, the case for incremental change in a radical age, Greg Berman and Aubrey Fox have produced the most mainstream and credible book of the three. The authors essentially and persuasively defend the benefits of muddling through. Their successful examples include US social security reform, the reduction of crime in New York City, and the hidden strengths of the US immigration system. For all the talk of governance failures, the country seems to have a relatively workable retirement system, has made some significant strides against crime, 
and continues to attract many of the most talented immigrants. Each of those achievements is the result of many small policy improvements over time, often unheralded during their implementation. Above all, and as its subtitle suggests, the book is a defence of such incremental reforms. Even the US Congress, it transpires, has been passing a surprising amount of bipartisan legislation in recent years, including on matters such as climate change, for example, the Growing Climate Solutions Act of 2021. As for the long term, we are told, if we can just manage to keep our faith in gradual reform, who knows what we might achieve in the years to come. Gradual does not delve deep in its philosophizing, but it seems the authors have some version of a consilience view in mind. Let's do something good now and hope for the best. Who, after all, has a better and more easily implemented idea than that? The authors also cite Amara's Law, named after the Stanford University computer scientist Roy Amara, which states that we habitually overestimate what a new technology can accomplish in the short run and underestimate what it can accomplish in the longer run. Berman and Fox's core vision is that building for the longer run requires an incrementalist perspective. While gradual is the most practical and satisfying of the books under review, it is worth considering, as the authors do not, the cases in which an incrementalist view might fail us. Do we wish the architects of the Manhattan Project to have been incrementalist in their outlook? And what about Abraham Lincoln, who was at first an incrementalist on the slavery issue, but then realised that circumstances required something quite different? Where does a truly incrementalist society find the moral and emotional capital to support its revolutionaries in the times when those revolutionaries are needed? It may be that incrementalism requires a dose of the Fisher view and its obsession with the longer durée, but how can a society manage that integration without giving up its beneficial incrementalist tendencies? All things considered, achieving the consilience of long- and short-term considerations may not be so easy. Our temporal perspectives depend critically on norms and individual world views. But what if different spheres of society require different ethics of urgency and complacency, and of long- and short-term thinking? If only social norms were so flexible on a sector-by-sector, era-by-era basis. You've been listening to the TLS. This was Every Little Helps, The Advantages of Gradual Reform Over Long-Term Thinking by Tyler Cowan from the issue of April the 21st, 2023. It was read by Martin Buchanan for Noah.